Good morning, and welcome to Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you about the murder of Melanie Uribe. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. Erica, I'm really excited to discuss this one with you today because it's a topic that we have not covered yet. And I actually have no idea where your opinion stands on this kind of stuff. So this case deals with somebody having a psychic vision, which led to solving the crime. Ooh, I'm pretty excited to hear this episode. I mean, we've heard about and kind of talked about even briefly psychics that have had visions and ideas about where a body is, but none that have ever led to a case actually being solved. Yeah, so I'm excited to kind of see where your thought process goes during this. In December of 1980, Melanie Uribe was 31 and a single mother of an eight-year-old son. She was a nurse at Pacoima Hospital in Burbank, California. On December 15th, she was driving her black pickup truck around 10.45 p.m., and was stopped at a traffic light in the Pacoima district. And what happens next to Melanie is one of my worst fears. While she was stopped at the traffic light, two men came from either side of her vehicle and jumped in the car with her and kidnapped her. Was that like seen by witnesses or was that seen on video camera? Yeah, they know this because a witness, Paul Wood, came forward and reported the sighting. At the time, they had no idea that it was Melanie, though. They just knew that a woman in a black pickup truck had been taken by two men. That's why I always keep my doors locked like anywhere I'm going because I do have that exact same fear. Yeah, and typically cars nowadays will lock if it's running anyway on its own. The witness didn't say anything about guns or knives, but I think it just happened to be unlocked. And it was in 1980, so they probably didn't have the automatic locks, and they just kind of jumped in and took over. Six hours later, uh, reports came in of that same black pickup truck on fire nearby on Bromont Avenue. It had been completely burned when they got there, but they found nobody inside. Not even evidence of her body? Nothing. That day at 4.30, or around 4.30, Shirley Trichelle, which was one of Melanie's friends, went into the police station to report Melanie missing and said that Melanie had left to go on to work the previous night and never made it there, and her and her friends had spent all day looking for her, and then they finally saw the report of the burning truck and saw that it was Melanie's and decided they needed to go in and file a missing persons report. I feel like that would just be really terrifying to, like, not know what happened. Absolutely. They go back and check the truck now that they know that it is Melanie's and find no evidence. And one of the investigators decided to talk to that witness again who saw the two men abduct her and said that at one point after they turned right down a street, they pulled over to the curb for a minute. And so the police officer went back there and there was a box of tissues on the ground, which Melanie's friends said was the box that was in her vehicle, but nothing else came of that other than they knew that it was there. But they don't know why it was thrown out or anything like that. Or maybe if it was kicked out, I don't know. So there was nothing in the vehicle at all? Was it empty completely? Well, anything that was in there likely burned up because they'd set it all on fire. Near this area is Lopez Canyon, which is this big wooded canyon area and investigators and police immediately started searching there because they kind of had a feeling that that was just a spot where maybe a body would be dumped 
It's at this point, too, that they release this information to the media in hopes that something will come from another witness or someone knows something to come forward so that they can find Melanie because they have no idea where she is, if she's alive, and just really nothing to go off of except for that that witness saw two men take her truck and then it was burnt. So there's a big gap of time in there that they just don't know what's going on. On December 17th, Etta Smith, who is a 32-year-old, and she was working as a shipping clerk at Burbank Aerospace Plant, which is about 10 miles from Lopez Canyon. And she saw a news report while she was at work about the disappearance of Melanie. And she saw that they were searching houses and instantly knew that Melanie was not in a house. Etta had a vision where she could see kind of see where she believed Melanie's body was from this news report. And I'm going to play you a clip of an interview that Etta Smith actually did with, I think it was Oprah, and we'll play a little clip of that for you. We're talking about premonitions, following your instincts. So, Etta, you felt what? Um, well, what really brought it about was I was listening to a news broadcast on a radio and uh, the night before, a girlfriend had called me on the phone and asked me if I had heard about a nurse who had been kidnapped and was missing in our area. And I said, no, I hadn't heard about it. So that day at work, the following day at work, I listened to the radio, and they said that they had found the lady's vehicle on a dead-end street and that they were making a house-to-house search for her. And as soon as they said house-to-house search, it was as if I heard someone speaking to me, said she's not in a house. And as soon as that thought registered, I saw exactly where she was. It was like there was a picture in front of me. Whoa. I I didn't know the name of the street, but I knew the area. I knew how to get there. And I just just knew. So what did you do? Call police? Well, this was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I was at work. I get off work at 3.30. And I'm arguing with myself all the way home. Because when I get to a certain intersection, I either turn right to go home or I can turn left and I'll be right in front of the police department. So I'm saying, I should stop. And I'm saying, no, I should go home. Well, when I got to that intersection, I said, let them think I'm nuts. I have to stop. And it's exactly what I did. I talked to a, a homicide investigator, told him exactly the area. Uh, I said, I, I knew that it's on the right-hand side going up this canyon road and that there was a dirt path going towards uh, this person and with the hill behind her. He said they had not checked that area, but that they would. And I said, well, you know, I have a feeling I will also. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Erica, what did you gather from that? That seems like a very specific vision. Like she really knew 
exactly where it was. And also, I'm really glad that she went to the police because I feel like, I I mean, I don't 100% know you said it was a solved case, though. So I feel like without her actually taking that leap of faith and going to the police, Melanie's case still wouldn't be solved. Yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and take you on a little roller coaster here. And, you know, poor Etta goes through it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But after Etta leaves the police station, she gets home around 4.15 p.m. And she's late. And her niece, who was 21, was watching Etta's son and daughter, who are 9 and 10 years of age. They could tell something was wrong. And she's explaining this to them. And she finally is like, I have to go look. I have to go see this through. So they all get in the car, which later on she looks back and says, if I would have been processing things correctly, my kids wouldn't have come with me. But she didn't think about it. They all just get in the car. And she drives to Lopez Canyon and goes up the hill about three miles. And they're looking everywhere and they're not seeing anything. But Edda says she can feel it and she knows that Melanie is here. So they start going back down that trail and at one point they see some tire tracks kind of off the side and so she gets out and puts her hand on these tracks and says that she can sense trauma and fear and she's like i know she's here and about 20 30 feet away they see a trail that goes off to the side and they walk up that trail and come across a body of a woman who's wearing nurse's shoes white nurse shoes they said and you said that Etta and Melanie had never met. Yeah, they did not know each other. And they take off running, basically. They don't know how to handle it. They get in the car and they start going down the hill even more. And as they're leaving, they pass a police officer who's coming up the hill. And they wave him down and tell him what's going on. And so he goes and looks and comes back. And he's she's asking, is this the nurse that went missing? And he said something like, it likely is. He didn't confirm it nor deny it. Erica, what do you think of that? Do you buy it? Or do you think somehow Edda was involved and that's how she knew the location? I hadn't thought about it that way, but I guess that's a possibility. I just went in my head because you said that it was a psychic. In my head, I was just, that's how I took it. Oh, okay. Well, that's what I was getting at is, do you believe in that stuff? And do you believe that someone can have that kind of vision, even though they're completely unrelated to the person? Honestly, there isn't anything in this world that I probably don't believe. I think that there's a lot of things that we don't already know that could come about. I don't know if necessarily it was a psychic vision or if it was just a strong feeling, but I believe that anything's possible. So I believe that it is possible that she did have a psychic vision, maybe. And it's interesting because some of the detectives there fully were were like believing it was just she had some premonition, some vision, and it helped them. But unfortunately, not everybody is... As um, I don't want to say open-minded, but not everybody believes in that stuff. And in this case, there was a detective where she, after they found the body, she had to go in the police station and a detective did not buy it. They questioned and interviewed her for almost 10 hours. And from her interviews, it wasn't necessarily friendly interrogations. There was talk of chairs being thrown and yelling, and they even questioned her nine-year-old son who did an interview and said that he got yelled at quite a bit too by a specific detective and they just they didn't believe that she could have known that stuff unless she was involved in the crime which if you don't believe in the psychic mediums or otherworldly stuff maybe or anything like that I can understand how you would have a hard time understanding how she knows this yeah 
I feel like if you are completely on the side where you just say absolutely not possible, you probably are going to be like, okay, the only way you know this is if you put the body there. And from a police detective's mind, there are a lot of people who commit crimes and then want to be involved in the investigation Mm -hmm. and want to be seen as the hero for saving someone or finding the body or solving the crime. So I could see how they're, why they're kind of suspicious of Etta. I agree. I can understand how someone would have a hard time getting past that. Personally, I am with you. I definitely, especially in this case, believe she just, you know, either she's psychic and had this thing or something else was helping out, you know, to find Melanie's body. And unfortunately, the investigator or police officer who was interrogating her didn't buy it and booked her. And she spent a couple days in jail because of it. Which is why we're right back to the people who don't want to get involved in the investigation. Like in the Brandon Lawson case, there were people that were like, I don't want you coming to my property because they can technically hold you for 24 hours for questioning. So, And we talked about that. I mean, I think we talk about it quite a bit. People being afraid to get involved because of wrongful convictions, because of things getting misconstrued. She talks about in that little clip and any other interviews you watch with her, she gets to that spot and she's like, do I go to the police station and try to tell them this if I believe it, which she firmly did, or do I leave? And ultimately, I'm obviously glad she did. But at the same time, she went through a bit because of it. You can understand this case specifically is a good example of why people are scared to come forward with stuff. And, you know, sometimes you have solid information and for her, it was just this intuition. She went there first and she didn't even go investigate her idea or whatever you want to call it. But she went to the police first without knowing if it was even anything accurate. Which is good because then it keeps her DNA away from the scene because if she'd gone there first, it would have made it a little bit more incriminating for her. She talks about, and I said it earlier, that maybe your kids didn't need to be there for that site, but I think it's better that she had them with her because they would have known if she had a body in the back car that, you know, and she was dumping it and they were all there. Maybe not the young kids to understand, I guess, but her 21-year-old niece was there as well. Luckily for Etta, there were detectives who believed her, specifically Detective Conmay, who was pretty convinced that she had nothing to do with it and once he found out she got booked he kind of figured he has to figure out what actually happened just to help her out and save her i always like when there's like one detective that just truly believes it and is going to fight for you no matter what yeah and even from a standpoint of looking at why they saw two men get in the car with melanie and take her i just don't know if you think she has a connection i guess i can understand but she's clearly not solely guilty of this crime if they do believe she was involved. Yeah, there would have had to have been somebody else involved. And the one witness, Paul, said that there were two men. So why were they thinking that she was involved? Because where does she come into play? Yeah, and that's what I was thinking and wondering as well. I'm just trying to like kind of think through the police's thought process. I mean, I can see on one hand, if you are completely against believing in psychics and psychic fictions and stuff, you're probably going to be like, oh, she had to have been involved. If you are kind of willing to open up to that a little bit and listen to it, then maybe and like Detective Conmay, where you're a little more willing to believe it. I mean, I can see either side, honestly, because like I said, they do sometimes think oh if you're involving yourself you probably had something to do with it but it was also but in this case i think it was really just 
like a good Samaritan kind of coming and trying to help and risking her future basically by stepping foot into this case. The day after Melanie's body was found, Detective Conway received a call from an anonymous woman who said that she has the murder weapon. And at this point, they had not released cause of death or the weapon or anything to the public. So he asked, what is it? And she says, it's a rock. And in the coroner's report, it said that she had been hit in the head. And that's how that was her cause of death by a rock likely the size of a volleyball or around that size. Detective Conmay, as I said, she called it anonymously, so he was not able to get a name or figure out who she was to further investigate this, really. And another call comes in on December 20th, so five days after Melanie was abducted, and they claim to know who was involved. And they agreed to meet the detective in a parking lot to talk about it. And they give some names of individuals who have firsthand account knowledge of what happened. And what we find out is that quite a few people actually knew who was involved because one of the men who were involved in this crime bragged about it. And a lot of people were scared to come forward and give their name because they were fearing for their lives as well because of these individuals involved. So one of the first names that the detective gets is of a 17-year-old from the area named Norman Willis. So they go and pick him up, and he invokes his Fifth Amendment rights. He doesn't want to talk. He keeps his mouth shut. However, Norman's parents aren't keeping quiet. They tell detectives about one of Norman's friends named Louis Carnell Morgan, who was 20 years old. And luckily for police, he had an outstanding warrant for a traffic violation. So they were able to bring him in and he's talking and he's denying being involved in all this and eventually he finally confesses also incriminates one other person spencer nelson who's 21 years old so there were three men involved and morgan lays it all out there he tells police so that night the guys decided that they wanted to rob someone and unfortunately for melanie she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time So they abducted her, pulled over, and Spencer Nelson actually raped Melanie in the back of her truck. And then they all got back in and drove up to that canyon where they led her up that path that she was found in. And Morgan tells investigators that Spencer Nelson wanted to kill Melanie, but Lewis Morgan did not want to be involved in murder. He didn't want to murder her. He just wanted to tie her up and leave her there. And from his accounts, he turned to go back towards the car. And while he was doing that, Spencer Nelson picked up a rock. And that's when he actually murdered Melanie. So where's Norman through all of this? What's reported and what's said in the interviews, I think he was just there with them. It doesn't sound like he had any active part. And honestly, from a lot of it, it sounds like most of the direct involvement was from Spencer Nelson because he's the one who actually sexually assaulted Melanie and ultimately killed her. So after they go back to the truck, they drop off Norman Willis at home and take the truck and set it on fire and then walked home after that. Seems really drastic to go from just wanting to rob somebody to like killing them. And you know, from all of this, I 
didn't even see if they actually robbed her or like took anything. I assume they did, but they don't talk about it in any of the articles, any of the documentaries or interviews I watched. So I'm not sure exactly what happened with that. I just, I cannot understand telling somebody in cold blood that you don't even know. Lewis Morgan even takes detectives to the gutter where they had dropped the rock off and it was gone. And Detective Conway had a feeling and inkling that that person that called in was likely the girlfriend of Nelson. After talking to the girlfriend, the detective was able to get her to say that she would give him the rock, the murder weapon, as long as she could go get it by herself. And he let her. And she came back about 20 minutes later with it in a pillowcase. Where was it hidden that she had to go by herself? I'm not sure. It's definitely a little fishy, but I guess ultimately they got the murder weapon and that was the goal. My only concern is, are there other things there that lead to other missing people? Yeah, I was trying to figure out and what's like, what reason was it that she wanted to go get it where he could not go? And I thought that was odd as well, but I, I'm not sure what happened. So after all this and it's said and done, Etta Smith is finally released from jail three days later. While she was there, she actually got dysentery and lost 12 pounds in three days. And something she said in some of her interviews is that she never heard anything back from the police department. No apology, no thank you for finding this woman's body, no compensation, nothing. And a year later, she sues them for the false arrest. And her attorney, James Blatt, requested that she be compensated up to $750,000. They ended up winning the settlement with a payment of $26,184. Etta ended up losing, I think it was, it says $1,184 in wages and attorney fees from paying to make sure she wasn't going to get charged with it and missing work. And then obviously there's some emotional distress kind of thing in there as well. In black, the attorney argues that finding a body is not a crime and having a vision is not a crime. He says also having information about the murder itself is not a crime. There's no reason that she needed to be in jail for three days for that. I agree. An assistant city attorney argued that the officers acted reasonably, and he said that with this, I think, quote, he said, bizarre tale of psychic vision, end quote, that the detectives believed they had to have her because she was a conspirator, and that it was completely reasonable for them to keep her in jail for those three days. I mean, it was reasonable for them to keep her in jail for 24 hours, but they didn't really have a reason for the arrest other than she knew where the body was. I guess maybe that's a reason. I just, I just, I struggled with that one. I wonder if there was a better way to go about it, maybe. Like, you know, say, don't leave, stay in the area, you're a person of interest, maybe even. Not instantly putting her in jail. But like I said, she won the settlement. They ruled in favor of her. Well, and it was the 80s, so I guess things could have been different with how they handle it. Here's what bothers me is that they never even like issued an apology or anything for her like nothing she said they treated me like dirt I got nothing from them and she said she would do it all over again because she was happy that she was able to bring justice to that family but I think she really got a raw end of that situation I agree I mean good for her for coming forward but Mm -hmm. it's just it's really sad that they didn't give her anything for it 
and not money-wise, but even an apology is... It just seems rude. Did Detective Conmay say anything to her about it? Say, like, thank you? Or nothing from him either? Not that I know of. She said nobody said anything. But from his interviews and how he talks, he seemed like he was a pretty stand-up guy. And I do wonder if maybe there's a conversation in there. But I don't personally know. I'm hoping there was. I don't know if you're going to get into this, but... Does Etta have any other psychic visions ever again that's reported? I'm not sure. I didn't see anything. She did talk about her childhood and that she often had times where she would kind of had those visions and see things that were going to happen before they happened. But as a kid, when she brought it up, her mom was like, this isn't normal. Keep it to yourself. So she just really ignored that side of it. Um, But she did say she's always had this kind of sixth sense. Police department, attorneys, prosecution all had a pretty solid case against these three men who were involved, and they were charged with first-degree murder, accessory to murder, rape, and kidnapping for robbery, and were all convicted, and they believe that the reason that Nelson murdered Melanie was because he had previously been in prison for a kidnapping and rape where the victim came forward and was able to testify, and that's what he was convicted off of, so they think he wasn't going to let that happen again so it was just like better to get rid of her than risk me going to jail again which thank god he got caught and they were like i said found guilty and sentenced to life in prison i'm just glad that the girlfriend also came forward with the murder weapon because i think without that i really kind of wonder where this case would be Mm -hmm. i mean they found her body thanks to edda which great but without the girlfriend would they have been able to really tie these two to it 100 percent. i'm not sure um it is good that people came forward even if it was anonymously to say these men are involved and that really is what led police to them the murder weapon helped from what i could tell from lewis morgan's confession it all just kind of came together so i think they just you know they had enough yeah, and so the confession was helpful, but I think that the murder weapon really just mm-hmm. sealed the deal. This was just one of those lucky cases, I guess, where there were enough people willing to cooperate and come forward and turn on some of the people that they're close with. And as I stated at the beginning, I was curious and eager to see your thought on the whole psychic vision, because there are times in law enforcement and murders and crimes where they do turn to psychic help or someone comes forward like this out of the blue. And, you know, maybe sometimes it is a lie and it's just for some attention. But this is a case where, as far as we know, it was fairly honest and it worked out well. And, you know, there's always skeptics out there, which is valid, that don't believe in it. I just think I find it hard to believe in this one specifically how Etta would have known all this stuff on her own. I agree. I mean, like I said at the beginning, there are cases where there's the psychics that come forward with different things, but it doesn't ever really lead very Mm -hmm. far. But in this case, it was just kind of nice to see that she was able to actually find the body and then it kind of i feel like maybe it kind of opens people's eyes up a little bit more to believing in the psychic world i agree and ultimately justice was served and i'm glad and i'm glad that melanie and her family got that closure you can find us on instagram at crime over coffee or on facebook at crime over coffee podcast 
You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepot at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica dash Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much. Thank you.